Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? What is Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? Dancing with the Black Elephant? From Yeshiva University, this is Andrew Boyarski, and you are listening to Dancing with the Black Elephant. I'm here with Kelly McKinney, who is the Senior Director of Emergency Management and Enterprise Resilience at NYU Lango Medical Center in New York City. From 2013 to 2016, he was the Chief Disaster Officer at the American Red Cross in Greater New York, where he led crisis response in the largest and busiest Red Cross region in the United States. From 2006 to 2013, Mr. McKinney was Deputy Commissioner for Preparedness at the New York City Office of Emergency Management, where he built the New York City preparedness infrastructure for a range of external threats. In 2008, he co-founded the Regional Catastrophic Planning Team with representatives from the states of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania. He is a certified professional engineer with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Kansas and a master's in public administration from Columbia University in the city of New York. Kelly is also a member of the advisory council for our master's in enterprise risk management, and he's been a guest on this podcast twice before. So welcome back to the podcast, Kelly. Andrew, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Great to be with you. Before we get started, I want to mention to our listening audience that Kelly and I know each other for over 10 years and have worked together, have had the pleasure of working with Kelly uh, while he was at the New York City Office of Emergency Management, now called the New York City Emergency Management Department. So this may be more of a conversation uh, than perhaps an interview as with past podcasts. Yeah, and I think um, you and I have been talking now for for, uh, uh, about an hour and we'll probably talk subjects different like uh, we won't talk about the beach and we won't talk about our dogs we'll talk about disasters and you didn't mention we did work together for 10 years but we worked together through Irene we worked together through Sandy so we were in the trenches together and, and I think that is worth noting because it is different right you when you when you are in the trenches uh, together I think that it's a different kind of friendship right you can uh, it, it brings you closer and um, you have that shared experience in the parallel universe. Let's get started with Hurricane Lane, uh, which as of uh, my last checking in terms of the news, and it's Friday afternoon on August 24th, uh, that it was a Category 3 uh, hurricane. It looks like it might drop uh, in ferocity, but it's now lashing the coast of the Hawaiian Islands with the outer bands of winds and heavy rains. This hurricane looks on track to brush by the islands and cause some severe damage, but not perhaps a direct hit as uh, we might have expected. What's your read on the situation and their level of preparedness? How resilient, um, from what you understand, is the critical infrastructure in Hawaii to this type of hurricane? Hurricane Lane was a monster for a while. It was uh, near Category 5 status, and the models showed it um, making uh, landfall on the Big Island. So it was the scenario for a while was was dire for the Hawaiian Islands, and they're dodging a bullet at this very moment right now. And and as you said, even the latest storm tracks show it tracking farther to the east, uh, farther offshore. They're getting lots of wind, lots of rain, and that is not good. They, there are areas on the Big Island that are going to get a foot of rain. Areas in Oahu, they're going to get two feet of rain, and um, that that that's a big job any way you slice it but um, but it's not what it could be and it's not um, it's not a direct hit like you mentioned Andrew and uh, coincidentally 
Um, today is the 26th anniversary of the landfall of Hurricane Andrew in 1992, and that was a direct hit. That was a Category 5 direct uh, hit on to um, Florida, south of Miami. It, it basically leveled Homestead, Florida. It, uh, 175 mile, mile an hour measured winds. It, it, the winds were measured until the uh, weather station was destroyed by the 175 mile an hour winds. And it, it basically ripped houses off their foundations and, and it leveled an entire town. And um, that is, um, that's what Hawaii was facing 48 hours ago. Um, and that that level of damage is um, catastrophic. It's truly catastrophic. And what's happening in Hawaii, you know, in, in my in my opinion, it would not be characterized as catastrophic. And that's good. That's a good thing. But in some ways, I think what's happening in in, in Hawaii is gonna is going to work against sort of their long term resilience because lots of people, um, you know, not the emergency management side, but lots of the public are going to take it as a sign that. Hey, you know, we we got through another one again, you know, and and the, I think it will it, it has a tendency to increase the complacency. Um, Twenty six years later, there aren't a lot of complacent people in in Homestead, Florida. So, you know, it's a lesson for us, and and it's it's time and time again we hear that only people who have had a direct impact by a disaster. Uh, actually take effective action to prepare themselves. People, even people who know, have friends, close friends, or even relatives who have had a direct hit by a disaster, um, don't prepare. It, you have had to have experienced that parallel universe yourself. I see that. And I had Steve Gutkin, uh, who you know, who used to be, was the acting director of the New Jersey Office of Homeland Security and Preparedness, uh, who's now at uh, NBC Universal, he was on the podcast, uh, and he said something that you know is, is uh, you know saying once you've seen one hurricane, you've only seen one hurricane. You're not you haven't seen everything else that's happened. So just because you've had that experience and you dodged it, doesn't mean that you're going to be safe the next time. Absolutely right. And a year ago, I was in Harris County, Texas for Harvey. That hurricane was also uh, unlike anything anybody had ever seen. It rained there it, over a course of uh, five days. It rained um, six feet of rain in in uh, greater Houston. And um, that is so, so every job is unique. And anybody that sits in uh, in our normal um, daily life and um thinks that they understand what they'll be faced with in a in a uh, in a disaster uh, not to mention catastrophe is mistaken so it's as you mentioned uh it's been um it's been one, one year since uh, hurricane harvey which caused over 125 billion dollars in damage second only to katrina uh and i know your uh, close colleagues with judge uh uh, Ed Emmett, who is the director of the Harris County Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, uh, which is the county that Houston, Texas is located in. Um, and they coordinate the emergency management efforts during uh, these types of events and certainly did that during uh, Hurricane Harvey. What lessons were learned and how have they increased their resilience in the wake of that disaster? Right. So uh, Judge Emmett is actually the local elected official, and he is um, he's like the, the county executive or the mayor. And I, um, as you said, I'm, I'm friends with uh, Mark Sloan and um, uh, Francisco Sanchez, who are the 
uh, heads of the emergency management agency there. And um, that is one of the best municipal emergency management departments in the nation. And they did uh, just an, an incredible job. Um, you know, the lesson, in terms of the lessons learned, um, this is the lesson that I learned. Even though they have a large staff, they, they have what many would consider to be sufficient resources. Um, you know, they, they're still under-resourced with respect to the enormity of, of uh, Harris County and the infrastructure there and the people there. And that team was in place for two weeks. Some of those folks did not leave that building for, um, for over two weeks. They, they slept there, they ate there, and they ran that job themselves. That was uh, something that I, that was my constructive criticism uh, of them and of, uh, of us. We, you know, we didn't, there weren't enough emergency managers that, that surged in to support that team. There was a, the level of coordination that was required was enormous. One of the things, Andrew, that they did, and many people remember, was during the height of the of the flooding, um, there were so many uh, water rescues that were required, and so they got beyond the capacity of of law enforcement and 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 the fire services. And so Judge Emmett called for private boats, and they called it the Cajun Navy. And that operation was coordinated out of the emergency operations center, and it was just it was incredible. And they did over five thousand rescues just that just that Cajun Navy piece. Um, but can you imagine um, not having uh, a plan for that and not having an idea that you would do that ahead of time and making that happen in real time? So that's a it's just an incredible accomplishment. Um, but it's 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 what you need in a, in every disaster is these new these 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 novel operations that you never thought of. So let me let me ask a question on this because I think you and I have discussed it before. Uh, you know, and, and I and I not to diminish the heroism and the sort of spontaneity uh, improvisation to bring a group like that to rescue people for water rescue and things like that. Um, could it have been prevented to get people out of their homes? out of floodwaters. And I know it's hard to do that. People want to stay in their homes. They don't think that flooding may affect them, especially if they've been told that they're outside of a flood risk area. Uh, but how, how would right. you, is there a way in which the communication could have been improved to get people out of their homes in time enough to prevent those types of rescues? So the only way in my mind that you could have changed it significantly would be would have been to call for a mandatory evacuation in advance and that did not make sense at the time and i don't think it makes sense today because the mandatory evacuations that are called for hurricanes are called because of one primary threat and that is storm surge right when a hurricane makes landfall it actually brings the ocean with it and that is uh, one of its uh, most dangerous characteristics. And that, and that is a wall of water that knocks people down and drowns them. And over half of the people that die in a, in a hurricane die from storm surge. So that's why, that's why the mayor of New York City would call a mandatory evacuation for, for, for a certain zone in advance of a hurricane and has done many times in the past. Um, but this is not the case for Harris County. There was no storm surge, essentially, that affected Houston per se. Um, and th so this was all water from the sky. And so that happens much more slowly. And so the, the thinking is that, you know, if the water is rising around your ankles, you know, you're going to uh, make an assessment and move. And um, unfortunately, a lot of folks waited too long. 
And and so maybe it is a communications thing, but I'll tell you, Judge Emmett and 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 the the mayor of of Houston and the governor down there, they 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 are good communicators. They're they're great communicators. So I don't know the answer. I don't you know, short of standing in somebody's house and 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 pointing a finger and uh, you know, you, you know that you have the old story of the um, you know the police officer who's trying to get folks out and, and he's walking around with a with a permanent marker saying you know write your social security number on your arm because that's how we're going to identify you and that kind of thing shocks people into uh, clarity. I think that's what happens is I think there's a lack of clarity in, when you get cast into this. You're in your home and the water's rising around your ankles. I think I think that tends to make people lose their ability to think clearly. And that's that's what we're talking about. So no matter how you have, uh, how much you talk to them, they're not going to be able to process it and, and do the right thing. Yeah, I know it's easy for us to sit here and sort of Monday quarterback uh, decisions that are made and actions that may not or not be, may 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 have been considered but not taken. Right. So I I, I get that. I, I know they're building mitigation measures to deal with the large scale flooding in places like Houston. W- what do you know about the, these efforts and their effectiveness? I was in the same emergency operations center in 2007 for Ike and was there for part of the recovery and then also uh, was in touch with with Harris County post Harvey. And there's no doubt that um, today they are moving much more swiftly and much more effectively. And I I think a lot of it has to do with lessons learned for Ike. But there's also the players. You know, uh, Judge Emmett uh, was the judge during Ike in 2007. Um, You've got some very effective uh, elected leadership there. You've got really effective emergency management agencies in the city of Houston and in Harris County. And um, they're they're really making it happen. There was a big uh, uh, bond effort over the last few weeks and and uh, people voted on raising money for infrastructure changes and they've been really effective in getting um, uh, public assistance money from from um, from FEMA and so it's really moving quickly I saw a tweet yesterday that was a slideshow of before and after photos uh, one year ago in Houston and then today and uh, it was it's just uh, uh, it's it's incredible that you and and some of us many of us have those images in our mind from 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 Houston during Harvey and those same places now it, 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 you would never have imagined that they were in that state in the and and so Houston is back and you know if you've ever been to Houston um, you know it, it's hard to to uh, uh, define resilience but if you could bottle it and sell it I think they're probably doing it in Houston well, I, I know it's the third or fourth largest city in the United States. Right. So, and, and you know, I think this is a critical thing that, you know, th- this is happening in a major city, much like, you know, New York City was hit by, um, you know, Hurricane uh, Sandy, uh, you know, going back now to 2012, uh, that uh, cities need to be resilient and need to be able to bounce back and to build these mitigation measures and have them in place. Yeah, and the spectrum of cities in, in with respect to that is vast. I mean, you know, Houston has to be at the at the uh, the top of that list in terms of resilience, and 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 you know, it's no accident that you know it has um, it has a multitude of direct experience with disasters. In fact, when I was there. You know, and I was talking about this flooding. The the uh, the guys in the EOC were like, you know, we had a similar flooding 
last April on on uh, tax day. We called it the tax day floods, and then and then uh, six months before that, we had another uh, you know 14 inches of rain in 24 hours. So so that repetitive uh, experience with disasters is uh, is the obviously the best teacher. Nobody wants that. The question is, how do we how do we get that kind? How do we move the needle for a city without having to to to, to bust it up uh, every year? And 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 there, there's no real there's no real answer to that. But I'll tell you, you know, it after Houston and a, and a couple of other cities, um, the, the it drops off dramatically. You can't really point to a lot of cities here, and even even worse anywhere else. Um, and, and call those cities resilient. And what, that's one of the reasons the Rockefeller Foundation, for instance, has that 100 Resilient Cities campaign to try to focus on that because cities are important. You know, Andrew, you and I worked together very closely on the Regional Catastrophic Planning Grant Program. That was funded, that was a unique federal program because it funded cities. It didn't fund states because I think um, people recognize that cities are the wave of the future. 80% of the population of the planet lives in cities now and that's only going to grow. The urban landscape is the one we have to we have to change. Yeah, and, and I think that's an important uh, point to make because you know Houston was built up as a major city along the Texas coastline because Galveston, at the turn of the previous century in 1900, had uh, virtually been wiped out by a hurricane. So the hurricane of 1900 had swept in, killed thousands of people uh, in that event, and uh, they decided that. You know, we're going to build further inland. We're going to build this network of canals for ships to come in. That's right. Uh, to basically act as a barrier between the coast and 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 that inland city. And so Houston, that's how Houston grew up, and and sort of outpaced Galveston in its growth. And now, subsequent to that hurricane, uh, the city of Galveston built a seawall, uh, which is you know it, it it was they started it. It took them uh, a couple of decades to actually build it to come to fruition. Uh, I think it was completed in 1963 when it was completely built out. Yeah. And it, what's interesting is that, so that was built then. And, you know, it, it actually survived many different hurricanes. What they realized recently is that the wall's still not tall enough to basically mitigate floods. Yeah. And so it, it's interesting that this, this is, it's sort of like, okay, we're going to build this inland away from the storm. But it wasn't far enough. I mean, you know, the, the water problem that those hydro meteorological phenomenon, which is just a, a fancy word for lots of water yeah. happening in a very short period of time, is something that we, we really have a hard time planning for. Plan and understanding what, you know, how high ultimately you're going to have to build that seawall, right? And, and, you know, one of the things, you know, y y we were talking about before, Andrew, was so Galveston is the scene of the worst hurricane we think in in the history of the nation in 1900 that Galveston hurricane but prior to that 11 years prior to that there was a city uh, south of Galveston called Indianola and Indianola Texas was just like Galveston it was it was out on the coast and um, and it it, it got hit by a, and devastated by a hurricane, and it never it basically killed the city. And the city fathers in Galveston saw that, and they made plans to build their seawall. And then as the years passed and the money wasn't quite there, they forgot it, and then, boom, they got hit with the 1900 hurricane. So, so that just goes back to that point that, you know, I have to be hit myself. I, they saw Indianola get hit. And they didn't build a seawall. And only until they got devastated did they say, let's turn around and build a seawall. So, you know, how do we, 
how do we get around that? You know, it, it is everybody. Sh- should we just let's just let's just have a program where we 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 make everybody experience a disaster, and you know, overnight it's gonna we're all gonna change our resilience posture. Well, well we have to. Otherwise, Governor Cuomo has said, "Mother Nature will take what is rightfully hers." Right, and that's what it's doing. Yes. That's what it's doing, and you know, we're we're it's it's uh, you know it's civilized society versus Mother Nature, and um, and that's and and you and I we were talking about this parallel universe because that's what it's like to be in the middle of a disaster. You can sense that, you know, you you, you can sense the power of nature there, and it's it's a scary thing, and you know, all of us live our lives uh, these days, and we go from our ordered workplace to our ordered home, and we look at our ordered self phones we sh- we really run and shy and and fear disorder but that's what that's what disasters are and that's what nature brings is is disorder um, and that's what you have to plan for you know it, it, a lot of emergency managers sit around carpeted conference rooms and 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 think it's going to be this 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 sort of sped up version of normal daily life when it's completely different and you're going to you're going to face things that you never thought you would face and never and have to do things you never thought you'd have to do and so there's only one way to do that and that's to have a big team of people that can help and that's our biggest problem i mean you look at that team in hawaii it's not nearly big enough for uh, ha- for a direct hit, if had that been a direct hit, the FEMA team that's there, it's not nearly big enough to help if that had been a direct hit. So um, we got lucky again, but ultimately we're going to have a direct hit, or it could be something else. It could be the the really big one, you know, the Catas- the, the Cascadia subduction zone or something. But right now in this nation, our teams are not big enough, and it, that's going to come come out uh, in the in the next big one. So you mentioned uh, you know cell- use of cell phones and you know how sort of plugged in on that and that sort of sets our our universe in a way or a good part of what we see uh, according to a study by the University of Texas done uh, after Hurricane Harvey social media calls for help appear to have supplanted the overloaded 911 call systems how should emergency managers you know and that includes those in government for-profit nonprofit world attune themselves to using social media effectively for emergency situations they have to get dramatically better at it than they are now. And not only social media, but WIA, the wireless emergency alerts and uh, email and text and uh, uh, emergency broadcast system and, and all of those tools. We, we are, and you know, uh, this is, I say this with all the affection in the world, we are abysmally bad at this and um, we need to get better. And, you know, uh, Hawaii is a great example. I mean, one of the problems that Hawaii has right now is they have a brand new, um, state emergency management director who was uh, new after the after Vern Miyagi, the old state director, was fired because of the the uh, false missile alert uh, last year, and that is a that's a public messaging debacle. It's the worst case scenario. So that's the one hand, you know, when you over message or you or you message in error and you alarm people, and the other side about it is. Is, is what's happened, what happened in uh, Sonoma County and in California during the wildfires when people didn't get messages that they needed to get. So we have not got this right. We're not even close. And, it, and you know, Andrew, you and I were talking. I was talking about my teenagers, and 
their expectation about what they what information they can get off social media is way too high it's 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 unreasonable in any context and you know you, what you see on these on these tweets and you see in snapchat and you see all these places is people saying why isn't this happening why aren't people coming to help me why you know and it's a it's a passive approach to i'm going to sit here and wait till the till somebody comes and saves me and you know that's never going to work. Doesn't matter how good your your social media strategy is, and and that's the problem. And when that when that uh, cell phone becomes, which it will, when it becomes that plastic brick in in their hand, and nothing's coming across that screen, that's when um, you know the reality of of the situation is going to begin to set in. And and that that's you know that's the prospect that we face. You know we. In some ways, uh, these the, the younger generation is living in those phones. They they part of their psyche is there, and um, and that's a that's a real risk for us because it, I call it the de-skilling effect. You know, they're losing their ability to think clearly and and think uh, um, outside of that, and they're losing their ability to to execute and do things. Like you know, an example is, uh, and it's in the book. Uh, you know the the great seamless disaster when uh, in August uh, 2012 when seamless went down right and so all over New York City people who uh, were able to go to an app and get and and have the doorbell ring and have food delivered now all of a sudden had to venture out onto the street and f- and, and and hunt for the food which means they had to go and talk to a live person and 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 pay for their meal uh, and even that. Uh, you know, my my daughter is she's loath to pick up the phone and call a Chinese restaurant and order. I mean, you mean I got to dial a phone? You mean I've got to talk to somebody? I need to do this on my app. So, and what is she going to do if if um, you know the grocery stores are closed? And what is she going to do if you know if if, if you know uh, take a, a few steps beyond that? So so our resilience is especially in the urban areas is it's at a frightening level right now. To tell you the truth, there's a deluge that can come from social media. During an emergency, are there ways that we can separate the signal, which has some meaning for us from the noise that sort of, you know, can drown that out at times? That's the right question. We, we uh, at, at uh, NYU, we use um, uh, an app called Data Miner and Data Miner uh, mines Twitter. Twitter is its sole app that it mines, but it's looking across all of the Twitter feeds for signal, for that signal within the noise, which is what you're talking about. And, and um, you know, it, it's great. And, and it, uh, I get, um, it selects certain uh, tweets based on our parameters and it pushes those into my text or it pushes it into my email and it alerts me and we, and it has helped us. Um, but it also tweets things that are that that are untrue. And had we followed up on, we would have done so in error. So, so you know, uh, there's no real, you know, you, you know, you wish there was a secondary app you could push it through, and there was a truth detector or something. But, but really, you've got to do. It's just about you know old-fashioned hard work, and you've got to check it. You know, you like one of the tweets. Um, we, we had a snowstorm last uh, last winter, and and there was a tweet that said the governor has put a. Um, a state of emergency and and uh, closed all local roads to traffic and that was that was just false so we called a few people and they said no that's that's not true but we, if i'm glad we didn't put it out cuz we might have just taken it and put it right out and that would perpetrate that 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 gossip and in a big job 
that's going to happen. People are going to take something, especially if they see a fast-moving incident that they know is actually happening. That that kind of those kinds of negative gossip, because because there are people who who you know I, I guess bad guys who love to throw in a, a, a you know an inject that's just going to increase the chaos, and they love to see their tweet get magnified, and so and and that's going to get pushed out by government and others and make the job worse. And New York City OEM has a similar, or I should say emergency management department, has something similar in terms of screening that type of social media for the right information. Right. They do. And they, they have Notify NYC. And they've put some very stringent protocols in place for what they push out to Notify NYC, which is their public messaging app. And, their, and, and, you know, and that's something that I think Hawaii has now. But, you know, why does every local and state and jurisdiction have to make it up? I mean, these these things should be uh, they should be consistent across uh, the whole nation in my mind. So I want to mention you recently published a book called The Moment of Truth, The Nature of Catastrophes and How to Prepare for Them. And you present uh, a catastrophic scenario called the Polaris Catastrophe. Can you explain why we should prepare for catastrophic events like the one that you paint in the book? About 10 years ago, um, one of the national labs came to New York City. I was working at the Office of Emergency Management at the time, and they got all of the the emergency managers and the and the uh, law enforcement and uh, FDNY in a room, and they they gave this presentation, which was a uh, it was a ground based attack uh, uh, of an improvised nuclear device on Times Square, a ten kiloton um, yield device. And for me, it was it was it was career changing. I walked out of that room a changed man because. Um, I understood clearly what the implications of that were, and then um, we've spent a lot of time uh, preparing for that. In the Regional Catastrophic Planning Grant Program, Andrew, you and I worked on the improvised nuclear device plan. Um, we did training around it. Um, that IND plan is just uh, it's it's just staggering in its complexity. But but the job is staggering in its complexity. And the and the 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 nature of the the national and actually global response that would have to be that would have to be brought to bear on the affected area is staggering in its complexity. So you need you need to confront that complexity now. And for me that so so that is really it. And we've we've actually the uh, Greater New York Hospital Association, we're we're working with them and we're also working on that IND scenario. The 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 truth is that uh, it, there's so much in that scenario that if you get better at dealing with, you're better at dealing with just about every job. There's little in an IND that um, uh, um, if you're prepared for that you can find in any other job. It's got it's got it's got all the biggies. It's got destruction. It's got uh, it's got significant radiological contamination. Um, it's got uh, it's got massive uh, large scale impacts. Um, both, uh, you know, and it, it, both at the uh, at ground zero, and then um, for the fallout plume. So it's an eye opener. And for me, you know, the other part when I was writing the the, the book, there was a lot of uh, politics around North Korea and and uh, what's going on with their nuclear program. And for me, I, I know that um, it's not a question of if; it's a question of when. And I I hope it's years and years down the road, but ultimately somewhere someday. There, there will be an, an, another nuclear attack on a civilian population. And so uh, hopefully it's, you know, hopefully it's a, a long, distant future, but we need to get ready for it. Again, in the book, you describe the, the brick wall of hope. And I quote, you've heard the expression, 
hope for the best and prepare for the worst. It's a good idea. But many of us only hope for the best and stop there. When it comes to the actual preparing part, we punt. It's too much instead of too much work to buy or too many scary scenarios. We don't want to contemplate. So instead of contemplating, we block everything out with denial as impenetrable as a brick wall. A brick wall of hope. How do we break through that brick wall of hope and help the average citizen, organization, company, local government, and on up to larger scales of government get the message and prepare accordingly? Well, in my mind, it starts with us. You know, we talked about this before that uh, the, the only real effective way to make, to, to, to make someone break through the brick wall of hope is to have them stand on the other side of that brick wall and be in the midst of disaster. But the, 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 the reality is, and the, and the inarguable fact is, that people like myself who get paid to prepare their organizations and the public for disasters cannot walk around with a brick wall of hope in their minds. And that's the, the, the premise of the book, is that it's not so much that the public has a brick wall of hope, it's that we disaster professionals have a brick wall of hope. We're not sufficiently envisioning the worst case scenario. We're not sufficiently prepared for it. We are not, um, we, there is a failure of imagination in our, in, in, in our, in our business right now. And it's unacceptable. And, you know, we are under-resourced and we are dr dramatically under-resourced and we're, uh, we're not as proficient as we need to get in terms of moving resources, in terms of, uh, information management. Um, and that's a problem. And that, that is, um, our level of capability is far, far less than what the public expects or what the public thinks we have. And that's our biggest problem. In a recent article that you penned, uh, the article is titled, Make the Ask. You cite rules are for daily life, but emergency managers like firefighters or police occasionally need to break the rules or think outside the box to solve a problem. And I know that sounds trite, but can you tell us uh, about your experience during 9-11 uh, when you were working at the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, uh, where you had a need for hand-washing stations, and how you dealt with it and what that experience taught you. Yeah, th thank you, Andrew, for that. Uh, so um, I was in the uh, New York City Emergency Operations Center on the morning of September 12th. That was, uh, it was about 6 a.m. on the morning after 9-11, and um, I was the associate commissioner for environmental health. We had people at the scene, and they were reporting a multitude of health and safety problems. There were just, it was, uh, it was literally a parallel universe down there with uh, not only uh, firefighters trying to rescue people and their and their and their uh, the other members from from the rubble, but um, there were uh, there were uh, volunteers, there were uh, uh, city agencies, there were. Hundreds and hundreds of people down there, and it was it was a, a tough situation. So we just started to to gather those problems and try to to wrap teams around them. And a lot of them we needed stuff for. And we had a we had a stuff agency. It's called uh, DCAS, Department for Citywide Administrative Services. They buy stuff, but they were they were overwhelmed as well. So so uh, you know about about in the middle of the day, I asked myself, well, how am I going to get this stuff? And then I and then it just dawned on me. Just call and ask. Just ask whoever you think has it. Just ask them for it. And so I started to do that, and I did that for a lot of different things. One of the things was, um, you know, we we needed hand washing stations. So so I googled I googled uh, portable hand washing stations, 
Um, and the name came up. It was called Polyjohn Enterprises. And I, I called the number and I got transferred around. I finally t- was talking to the owner. I told him who I was and I said, I need hand washing stations for the rescue workers at, at Ground Zero. And he said, how many do you need? Uh, and this was, this was um, you know, it was, it was late in the day. Um, they were getting ready to close their factory. They kept it open. They worked uh, throughout the night. And then a uh, day and a half later, they were, that, they were dropping hand washing stations, the uh, portable hand washing stations with 30-gallon uh, water tanks. And they had, a, they, had this, they had a soap dispenser. They had paper towels. There were little sinks all over the street. And by the way, um, there, there may be people here this, that, that worked on that job and, and, and said, you know, uh, oh, my God, I remember when all of a sudden there were, you, you couldn't walk 10 feet and you'd trip over a hand-washing station. So it, was, it, it, you know, it wasn't as well-coordinated and it wasn't as well um, uh, you know, executed as it could have been, but we needed them in the moment and we got them. But, and I did it just by picking up the phone. I did that for a lot of things in those early hours and days. I don't recommend it because we have those procurement procedures for a reason, but in the disaster, if, if there are lives at stake, we have to break the rules. You got to beg and borrow and steal what you need to get uh, help to the people who need it. And that's, that's really the, the lesson for me. Just to let our, our listeners know that some of the articles that I've referenced here will be posted as links in the podcast uh, description. Kelly, it was great speaking with you today, and thanks again for coming uh, back on the podcast. Andrew, always a pleasure. Great to see you again. Look forward to it. Likewise. We spoke with Kelly McKinney, who is the Senior Director of Emergency Management and Enterprise Resilience at NYU Langone Medical Center. Kelly is also a member of our Advisory Council for our Enterprise Risk Management Master's Program in the CAT School at Yeshiva University. Find out more about our programs, including our MS in Enterprise Risk Management, at our website, www.yu.edu forward slash K-A-T-Z or CATS. We would like to hear your feedback on our podcasts, so please send us any questions or comments to us at CATSpodcast, K-A-T-Z-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at Y-U dot E-D-U. Thanks for listening.